the Word with Pastor Don Haskins, where we open up the Bible to see what God's Word says and how it might apply to our lives. Our prayer is that you allow Jesus to change you from the inside out. And now, today's lesson. Galatians chapter 4 and Hebrews chapter 9, we will be looking at pretty deep doctrine things today, doctrinal things today, and I believe it's important for us to not simply be surficial on a Sunday morning, knowing that there's a lot of people that will come in on a Sunday morning that are not necessarily used to sitting in a Bible study. And so when you get into doctrinal things and you get into a little bit deeper things, it becomes kind of a a hard thing to hear. Well, what I want to do today is I want to, hopefully the Lord will do this in us, is that he's going to teach us what Galatians chapter 4 means, 3 and 4 means, to understand the, the freedom and the liberty and the standing that we have with God and why it is that we have that. I, I'm afraid that there's a lot of Christians today, and I'm not going to say you guys, but I will say that there are a, I believe, a vast majority of Christians that won't understand what we're talking about today. They, they don't completely, they can't grasp it. They, 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 if you were to have them explain, they'd go, I have no clue. I have no clue. I just invited Jesus into my heart and that's it, you know. Well, what was the purpose of inviting Jesus into your heart? I don't know. Somebody asked me to and I did it and so here I am. Now, I'm not saying that that's not a, a prayer of salvation that God can't save you through that. I'm not saying that. But what I, I hope doesn't happen is that we just stay in that place. And back when I was growing up, I played, I think, 11 or 12 or years of football. I don't remember how long, you know, I played football. It was quite a while back when I was growing up. I remember the first day of practice, we'd get there and they'd throw us a a, a playbook and we'd go, what in the world? This is like Greek. It's how in the world are we going to get through this playbook? And now from the from a little kid, from a little kid, when I first started playing at nine years old, our playbook was pretty basic. We had like nine plays, you know, and, and it was nothing really big, you know, and, and, and you'd only go over by the end of the year, you'd get all nine plays down. You know, I mean, the first game you're on two plays. I mean, it's like, you got two plays and you're basically just a helmet with legs out there anyways. And you're just kind of, you're just kind of bouncing into each other. You know, remember the old vibrating, uh, uh, NFL football game, you know, and turn it on and one guy, they all kind of run each other and, you know, that's kind of what you are as a little junior all American football guy out there with a helmet with legs on, you know, but as the time went on and as you got older and as you grew up, the playbook kept getting thicker and thicker and thicker until I got to, you know, high school and into even into junior college, my playbook was pretty thick. And you're going, my goodness, this is like a Bible. I mean, this thing is thick. I mean, you might have, you know, a hundred pages, 200 pages, you know, of plays. And, and you think, oh, well, that's not a lot. Except when you consider that there's like eight plays on each page and you're going, goodness, I've got to know these things. Yeah, when you get into a huddle, they would expect you to know if the quarterback called that play, they'd expect you to know your job. But the thing is, is that going back to the very first day of practice, when they gave you the gave you the playbook, the idea is, is that that's not where you stay. The idea is, is that when you get that playbook on the first day of practice, and they give you your uniform, and you put that uniform on, you know, you're on the team, right? You look like you're on the team. You smell like you're on the team because you're going to stink. That's just football. You got to love the smell or you won't make it. And, and so you look the part. You have all of the, the looks of it. You got the playbook, you got the helmet and the shoulder pads and the, you know, all of the other things, the cleats. You have all the, that equipment on and you look the part. And so you can technically say, hey, I'm on the team. I'm on the team. Well, yeah, we'll get out there and run a play. I have no clue. I have no clue. Hey, Haskins, you're in. Where? Go towards the team that has, that looks similar, you know? <laughs> yeah, run in there. Okay, guys, what do I do? What do I do? You know? And, and the, the idea is, is that you don't ever want to just stay where you started. You want to grow, right? I, 
that's pretty simple. That's basic. The thing is, is that that's what happens to a lot of Christians, that we become a Christian, and then we just stay with the playbook in our hand, and we don't know the playbook. We don't understand the playbook. And so the playbook remains unknown. Somebody goes, you're a Christian? Yeah. Well, why? And then you, you, you have a real hard time to explain why. Or somebody comes up and they, they say something to you. You know, the, the enemy, he strategizes against you, by the way. You understand that, right? The enemy, he strategizes. He plans. The Bible says that he walks around like a roaring lion seeking to whom he may devour, praying around, praying along. He, the idea is, is he's studying your every move in order to find a weakness to take you out. Now, there was a time back in high school that I played in, in I was a junior in high school, and we played against a, a team that was from L.A. Banning High School. I, I'm kind of doing this for the sake of some buddies that listen to our messages, you know, on online from back out in California. We played a team from Banning High School. There was two guys on their team. They were the co-captains of the ESPN's All-American team. They were the two running backs, Danny Andrews. He was a, a running back that went full ride to UCLA. And Michael Allo, who was a huge Samoan, he had like 30, 30 inch thighs. Now, think about that. Who has a 30 inch waist in here? <laughs> think about that. He has two waists as he's running. Now, it's not, and you'd think, wow, that big of thighs, he's going to be slow. No, he, he ran like a 4240. And for any of you guys that know anything about 40 times, if you've been watching the NFL Combine, that's pretty stinking quick. He was fast and he was mean and he was a hard hitter and that both of these guys were so, so fast when we played against this team. Well, I was the, the, the starting right halfback on our team, but I was the backup linebacker. I was the first substitute for a linebacker. So we had a couple of guys that were on our team. Jerry Stafford was our, our linebacker and Mo White, Montone White was our, our other uh, linebacker. And these guys were, these guys were great. These guys were awesome. These guys were big. And they played, they practiced all week. But our coach, for some reason, he didn't really give me a whole lot of reps that week because we were so focused on beating this team that they had me focus most of my time all of my time virtually on offense, but they gave me no defensive time. And on that defensive first play of the game, actually it was the, it was the first series, we were on offense first. You see, Jerry Stafford was our, our starting uh, linebacker, left linebacker, but he was also our starting tight end, and he was a big guy. He was one of our big assets on our team. And Jerry Stafford went over the middle and just got blown up the first series of the field, not really like, you know, Looney Tunes, you know. Oh, he's gone. TNT. But he got blown up and got knocked out of the game. And so we didn't, I don't think we scored on that first drive. I don't know. Sorry, guys, if I don't remember. But here, here's the thing. Jerry got, got hit and he got knocked out of the game. And so our coach, Jim Evans, says, Haskins, you're in. When we went out on defense and I'm going, I have no clue what in the world is going on. I didn't practice all week. And I thought, how silly. I, I have the best running back tandem in the nation that I'm going against. And, and I'm like one of the main guys to stop it. And I'm a lot smaller than Mo and Jerry. <laughs> and and I, I went in there. And for whatever reason, I don't know why, but our coach our very first play he coached or he called on defense was a pass defense. And I'm thinking, coach, you have the best running back tandem in the in in all of the United States, and you think they're gonna throw on us? And so my first initial thing, I was supposed to, I was a left linebacker, I was supposed to, as soon as the ball was snapped, I was supposed to take one step forward and then like three steps in a diagonal back to get into my zone. 
And I'm thinking, there is no way these guys are going to throw. They've watched our tape. They know I'm not a starting linebacker. If I have the best running back tandem in the NFL, or yeah, it seemed like these guys were NFL players, but in, in, the, in high school, I know where I'm going to run the ball at. And I'm thinking, I am going to be picked on all day long. And so I just said, I, I'm sorry. Kids don't pay attention to what I'm saying right now, but I disregarded the coach. I said, there is no way that they're going to throw the ball. They're coming right at me. And so I, I sat here and I thought, okay, okay, here it is. The ball snapped and I just, as fast as I could, I just, I just ran forward as fast as I could. And a hole opened up and there was Michael Aldo, all 4-2 speed and 230 pounds of him. And we hit at the line of scrimmage and it was the hardest hit I've ever had in my life. Boom! And I hit the ground and I'm going, holy cow! And the running back got past me a little bit, but I mean, I had to take this guy out. And he jumps up. I'm jumping up going, I don't know that I've ever been hit that I, I'm. This is crazy. This is crazy sport. He jumps up. He goes, hey, nice hit, 3-4. I was number 34. I'm going, yeah. Woohoo. You know, go back into the, into the, into the huddle and, and the coach calls the same kind of a play. I'm going, they're coming right back at me. And so I did the same exact thing. Boom. We had a stalemate right there at the line of scrimmage. Man, I'm going, I can't take much more of this. And he jumps up. Nice hit three, four. The next play. Same exact thing. I went and I, the coach, their coach was, if any of you old football guys, uh, Ferragamo, you remember Vince Ferragamo played for the Rams? His brother was their head coach. And so Ferragamo, he, he, uh, he called this next play right here in the same place and I hit Michael Allo as hard as I could hit him, as, as hard as we hit. I, I woke up and now again, this is one of the things about tackle football. I got up. And it's the only time in my life I got up, I got hit so hard. He jumped up, hey, nice hit, three, four. And he jumps back. I'm going, this guy's a real nice guy, but he's killing me. (laughs) And I literally got up and I could see clear out of both eyes. The problem is they weren't looking the same direction. I could see this way clear and I could see straight clear. And I'm like, I have never had my head hit so hard in my life. And I, I stagger back to the huddle and I'm trying to hear the play, and I just hear, and I, I'm not focusing. I'm trying. I'm just going get my eyes back straight because I'm going to die. And and they they we they break out of the huddle, and I'm kind of wandering back to my place, to where I'm supposed to be, and I'm going. They're coming back at me. Eyes coordinate, you know, coordinate. Now again, the coach called a pass play. Why is the coach calling a pass defense? But I, I'm sitting there and my eyes are like this. And all of a sudden, the noise in my head was a buzz. And my eyes, I mean, as the Lord is my witness, I could see clear. And my eyes started doing this. I'm going, go, 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 go. And it locked as the ball snapped. Or not right as the ball snapped because they locked. And I asked Mo, I said, Mo, what's the, what's the defense? And he said, 50, you know, cover two, you know. I said, okay. And so I took my coach's probably for, you know, self-preservation. I said, okay, I'm going to go into that pass defense that my coach wants today. And so here it is. As soon as my eyes snapped back in and the ball snapped, I took my one step. I took one step this way, only to know that they, only to find that they came and did the same exact play. And I took one more, I couldn't even get this. This is how fast it happened. Now, if you know anything about football, I'm like four, five yards back, four yards back. From the ball. Michael Allo is probably four yards back from his side. So there's eight yards distance. That comes out to 24 feet, right? I just did that math in my head. You'd be proud of me. Here's the thing. 24 feet between me and Michael Allo, which is probably about from here to the back wall, right? I'm sitting here and I do this or I take one step forward, one step back. And I see him coming. By the time my foot even just squares up with this, Michael Allis hit me in the chest. That's how fast this guy was. That's how big he was. And I flew backwards with my legs up. And I flew probably four yards backwards. 
This guy was mean. And, and Danny Andrews took off like a 70-yard run. I was clueless. The whole game. Now, we lost 28-14. We gave it a good shot. But here's the thing. I was so ill-prepared for that game. I was so ill-prepared for that game. I didn't know what I was doing. I was out there just basically playing Sandlot football with 10 other guys that knew what they were doing. I got yelled at by Leo Ramos on that play because I tripped him. Because he was our defensive back and he, I tripped him. Because I got hit so far back into the defensive backfield. And he yelled at me. He screamed at me on the field. I'm still offended by that today. <laughs> but here's the thing, guys. Listen. I didn't know the play. I didn't know the playbook. I didn't understand it. Now, I will say this. I have some culpability in that. They did give me the playbook. But I didn't get any reps in practice all week long. I could read it, but unless I do it, it's hard to to understand. You see, that's how the Bible works. You have your playbook, the playbook that God has given to you and to me. And you can read it, but if you don't run the reps, you're not going to understand it, right? You're not going to see the power of it. You're not going to see the the viability of the word of God in action. When God says, do this and I will be with you, you're not going to see the viability of that. And because you don't, you go, I'm getting bored with with Christianity. I don't want to learn anymore. I'm, I'm, I'm satisfied. I'm, I'm set. I'm saved. Don't ever be satisfied with just saved. Don't ever be just satisfied with just, hey, I'm going to get in. I might have some, you know, smell of some soot on my clothes. I got in just by a, by a, by a hair. But I'm there. Listen, guys, we have a, we have, we have such a, a vast plan for us as Christians. But unless we know God's playbook, we're, we're, we're playing blind. You're making it up as you go. And, and there's a lot of Christians that are making it up as they go. There's a lot of pulpits that have pastors in it that don't understand a lot of the things that we're going to read today. And they kind of make it up as they go. The, 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 the sad thing is, is that they've got large churches. And so if the pastor doesn't understand this, what's he teaching to the congregation? The congregation even knows less than the pastor. And if the pastor doesn't know much, and then the congregation isn't really going to know much, what are we doing? We've got to know. What's that? Yeah, playing church. We're playing church. We can't play church. We just can't do it. So so here, here's the thing. We're going to look at some of these things. And as we look at, and we're going to do a little bit of reading here. And I want you to stay focused. I want you to... Just ask the Lord. In fact, I'm going to pray before we start reading that God would give you the attention to understand or to to stay attentive to what we're reading, but also that God would give you the understanding of why he has this written down for you and for me. Okay? All right. So I'm going to read our Galatians passage. I'm going to start in verse 26 of Galatians chapter 3. I'm going to end in verse 7. And then we're going to pop over to Hebrews chapter 9. All right? Beginning in Galatians chapter 3, verse 26. For you, speaking of Christians, are all sons, and understand that's a generic term, so that's not excluding you ladies. Okay? It's just a generic term. It's just us. Okay? For you, Christians, are all children or sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. You see the support there of what we're talking about? Of that the sons are, are not just male, it's everybody. There's neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you're Abraham's seed. And if you're Abraham's seed, then you are heirs according to the promise. Now, 
Paul says, I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, does not differ at all from a slave, though he's master of it all. You understand what that just said? Here's a child who is the heir. You know what an heir is? An heir is somebody that is going to get it all, right? A father or a rich uncle or whatever. They have something. You're the main beneficiary on their will. Okay, and as you're the main beneficiary, and we're going to read that here in just a second, if you're the main beneficiary of this will, when do you enjoy the fruit of that will? And I know that those are probably not the best terms to use in in that, because enjoy and when are you going to enjoy that? It's going to have to come after the one dies, right? You're the heir. You're going to get, once this one dies, you will get that. All right. And so what, what Paul's saying here is you're an heir, but as you're a child and he's talking about a father going to be handing off to his son all that he has as a child. You actually are going to be a master over all these people that are teaching you and growing you up and, and getting on your case when you're not doing the right things. You they are keeping you in line. And, and you're actually their master. You're actually their boss. You're actually going to be their leader. You're going to be the one that's paying these guys. You're the one that is going to be, you know, the beneficiary of your father's estate. And now they're a part of the estate. And yet right now, while you are still a child, you have not inherited that from your father yet. And so there's a time where you're going to have to grow. You're learning the business. You're learning the fields. You're learning the cows. You're learning the, you know, you're learning all of the facets. And if you're a good father, you're, you're having your child learn the business. You don't just hand over something and the child knows nothing about it. A father's going to put their son or their daughter out there and, and make them go through and get their fingernails dirty. Get that dirt underneath those fingernails. Sorry, gals, but there it is. In order to learn, right? In order to learn what, what, when you say, Hey, just get out there and do it. Well, if you have never done it, you have no idea what you're asking these people to do. And, and the idea is that to, to be a good boss, to be a good master, if you will, you, you need to understand what people are going through before you ask them to do it themselves. You see? And, and so as you understand, you're going to be a much more compassionate and merciful boss, right? And so, He says, now I say that the heir, verse one, as long as he is a child, he doesn't differ at all from a slave, though he's master of all. You see, he's having to do everything that the slaves are doing, even though he's the master of it all one day. But he's under guardians and he's under stewards until the time appointed by the father. Even so, we when we were children We're in bondage under the elements of this world. But when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law that we might receive the adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent forth his spirit, the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father, which Abba is literally, it's its an affectionate term. It's a term of endearment, like calling your dad, like calling your father daddy. And so here's what, you know, he sent, he sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying out, daddy, father. You ever think of God that way to yourself? Have, I, I used to have, I, have, I didn't used to have, I just spoke with him just recently. A good friend of mine used to be an accountability brother of mine. We've prayed for he and his wife uh, for many times over here. His name's Owen Ridgely. His wife passed away. Her name was Lynette. We worked with them both over in Fort Lauderdale, and and uh, she's been gone not quite a year yet, but she had cancer. But Owen was one of my accountability brothers over in Fort Lauderdale, and one of the things that he did all the time, and and it it. It always shocked me because I never really heard anybody pray like that. I'm not asking you to pray like that, but it was something that to Owen, it was the thing that he did, man. I mean, it was just the way he viewed the Lord. He would pray. He wouldn't go, Heavenly Father. He'd say, Daddy, Daddy, Father, Daddy. 
thank you for loving me. Thank you for giving me my life. And Daddy, I couldn't do any of this without you. It's just, he's, he's saying, Abba, Abba, Father. He had this term of endearment for the Lord. I'm going, wow, can you do that to God? I mean, can you, can you be that impersonal, or can you be that personable, you know, personal with the Lord saying, Daddy? I came to the conclusion, I think, yeah, I think you can. It took a little work in my head, but I'm thinking, well, what in the world should we call him? It's not, it's not a disrespectful manner. I think it's a, it's a very respectful. It, it places you in the place of subordinate. It places you in a place of willing subordinate, of enthusiastic subordinate to your father. I very much welcome this, father. I very much welcome me as your child, daddy, you know. So Abba, father. Therefore, you are, Paul goes on verse 7, therefore you are no longer a slave, but you're a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. All right? Move over to Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9. We are going to talk about Old Covenant and New Covenant. Real quick. I'm not going to spend a lot of time, but we are going to talk a little bit about this right now. We're going to read. I'll probably stop and make a comment here and there, but for the most part, I'm going to be basically doing a lot of reading right now. The idea here is the writer of Hebrews, who I believe is none other than Paul, we don't completely know, we can't confidently know who is the writer of Hebrews, Many different people are the supposed writer, but I, it seems to me in through my study that I believe it's Paul. And, and so, not that you can't have a different opinion on that. The point is, what is the content of the letter? Who cares who wrote it? What's the content of the letter? The content of the letter correlates very, very strongly with this verses, you know, these here beginning in verse, chapter nine, verse one. We see a very strong correlation with what Paul's talking about in Galatians chapter three and four. Okay, talking about the law, talking about the new covenant, the law and the new covenant. To a Christian, you go, oh wow, are we going to talk about law again? Well, if you don't understand it as a Christian, that you don't understand the law, you don't understand the consequences of the law, you don't understand that those who are under the law. We'll have to live to the law. If you live to the law, you're going to die to the law. The, the point is, you can't be saved under the law. And so when we understand the law, we understand our woeful ability to keep the law in its entirety. You and I are going to be lost. We can't keep the law. We're going to be lost under the law. The gospel... We use the gospel in our English language so easily. Oh, it's the gospel. It's a go- oh, it's a gospel of Mark. Oh, it's the gospel of Luke. It's the gospel of Matthew or John, whatever. Or I'm out to, you know, share the gospel. But if you really think about it, gospel is good news. And again, good news can't be good news unless there's also a bad news. And there's bad news and good news. The idea is, is that if you understand, you can't completely and totally appreciate the good news unless you also understand if you don't have the good news, if you haven't accepted the good news, if you haven't accepted the gospel, you will be relegated to the consequence of understanding far too late what the bad news is. If you don't understand the bad news, the bad news is that if you try to keep the law, if you try to, if you try to get to heaven on your own merit, you're lost. You are going to go to hell. I'm sorry. I, there's no other way of saying that. Is that a fire and brimstone message? Yep. Sorry. We don't have a lot of those today from pulpits. There's a world that is racing towards hell right now. Jesus, Jesus spoke more about hell and people going there than any other writer in all of scripture. And when Jesus says, wide is the gate and many there are who go that way, that leads to destruction, that leads to hell. But narrow is the gate. 
so narrow that only one person get in, can get in at a time. Narrow is the gate and few are, the, are those who enter into life. The idea is, as you understand, oh, I've used it before, it'd be like a funnel. You picture a funnel in your head. Put the funnel on its side. You got the big wide open here, and then you, and then it gets smaller and smaller down to a, a just, just down to a, an individual, you know, where it's just a little point, right? Using the funnel correctly, you pour it into the big, and then it goes down into the small. And the idea is, is that Jesus says, many are they who go to destruction. What he's saying in that, in that is that the, the majority of people aren't going to, to understand or want me. They're not going to want my salvation. They're not going to want my sacrifice. They're not going to want what it is that I'm offering to them. It's free. It's a free gift. It's eternal life. And for the vast majority, the people are going to turn their backs on me. And, and the thing that scares me in Ma- you know, Matthew chapter uh, uh, 7 talks about Verse 2021, many will come to me in that day and they're going to say, Lord, Lord, didn't I cast out demons in your name? Didn't I do mighty things in your name? Didn't I go to church? Didn't I go to that popular church? We all went. Didn't I go and, and go to, you know, you know, faith, you know, locks, you know, whatever, you know, pot faiths. I couldn't think of the term. Because we don't want to say potluck because there's no such thing as luck. But here's the thing. We don't want to call it potluck. We want to call it a pot faith. So we go to pot faith and we eat good casseroles, you know. I went to a lot of those and I took I took good dishes. Well, see, if that was a criteria for you to enter into heaven, well, then, man, you'd be glowingly, you know, accepted in. But that's not the criteria to get into heaven. It's Jesus Christ and him crucified. Why was he crucified? Because man couldn't get to heaven apart from Jesus Christ. He had to die on a cross. He had to go to the cross. He had to suffer. He had to endure the penalty that you and I could never endure ourselves. Not that we couldn't endure it, though we couldn't. But that even if we chose to endure the suffering that Christ went through, our blood was so tainted in sin that it wouldn't even have been enough because we're a sinner. It's the reason why Jesus was a sinless man who went to the cross for you and I. We're going to see that here in just a second. But unless you understand that wide is this gate that's going to destruction and there's a lot of people that are saying, man, but I thought that I was a Christian. What made you think that you were a Christian? What were you saved from? Who were you saved to? I'm afraid that there's a lot of people that call themselves Christians that basically have a fire insurance policy in their pocket. It doesn't do anything to their life. There's no difference. There is absolutely no difference. There's there's no walk with the Lord. There's no reverence towards Christ. There's this book, this Bible. I am not going to read that. That thing is boring. But I'll know every stat of every NFL football team. Sorry, guys. Ouch, that hurts. That was one of the things that really caught me one time. God nailed me. Back, back when I was growing up. We used to race. My dad, my brother Dave, and myself. We used to want to get up. The first one to get up, make the coffee, and get out and get the newspaper so we can get the sports page. Because if dad did it, he'd get up and he'd drink the coffee and he'd take forever on the sports page. Dave and I, we were a lot faster. But every whoever got the sports page, we... We infuriated the other two. Because you read everything that was going on in the sports page and then you go, okay, I'm done. You give it to them and you go, hey, yeah, this happened, that happened, this happened. Yeah, that guy got this, that guy got that. See, we didn't have phones back in that time. Well, we did have phones, but they were the old, you know, ring, ring, you know. And they were attached to a wall, you know. We didn't have, you know, information at our at our fingertips. Back then you had to wait for the... The, the uh, uh, Sun Sentinel, or not Sun Sentinel, but the, uh, I forget even, the, the Sun is what it was called. The San Bernardino Sun is what we did. Or the Redlands Daily Facts. And we'd sit there and we'd read it. And then we'd ruin it for my dad and my brother. You know, I'd do that and they would do that to me. Hey, this happened, this happened. And he goes, oh, stop, just don't say that. I want to read it myself. And you did it and you walked away gleefully and, you know, 
But here's the thing. One day I was reading, and I think it was my brother Dave asked me something about the Bible, you know, because that kind of conversation would come up at the table. It was around the breakfast table one time. Was, I think it was just Dave and I in there. He asked me a question. And it was about a Bible verse, and I, I, I couldn't remember the Bible verse. I couldn't remember much about anything, where I could find it or anything like that. And, you know, nothing really big happened there, but it was after Dave left and, and I kind of went off to work and I'm, I'm sitting there going, I've been a Christian for a long time. And that was a very, very, very well-known Bible verse that I don't even know how I'd get to it. Now, here's the thing. I know that in 373 carries, Earl Campbell got 1,984 yards in this season. I knew how many carries he had. I knew how many yards he got. I knew I knew how many yards he had complete for his whole career. I knew things, stats about football players that were just crazy. And yet I couldn't find a simple Bible verse. And I thought, my goodness, I am so excited to get up and read that newspaper to understand sports. But I'm not excited at all to really understand my relationship with the Lord. I don't say that to to beat you down or anything like that or make anybody feel guilty, but my goodness, sometimes we need a wake-up call a little bit to go, hey, you know what? Wait a minute. What do I really know about the Word? What do I really know about God? What do I really know about my salvation? Hebrews chapter 9. He's going to talk about the old law. He's going to talk about the law. He's going to talk about what you and I were under. And and I know I didn't finish the little funnel thing, but understand very quickly, many people who go through that funnel, they feel like they have a lot of freedom, a lot of elbow room. But as you go through a funnel, wide is the gate that leads to destruction. you got a lot of elbow room, but pretty soon that funnel starts getting a little smaller and smaller. All of a sudden it gets a little tighter and tighter and tighter to the point where if you even want to turn around and go back, you can't because there's too many people coming forward and so you're going to get swept up. You're going that way to a point where it spits you out one person at a time. One person at a time because that person has made a choice not to follow the Lord. I'm not going to be able to blame anybody else for my destruction. I'm not going to be able to blame. You're not going to be able to blame. Nobody is going to be able to blame anybody for you going to hell but you. It's your choice. You go in there yourself. That's where the fun, oh, I have this freedom. Oh, and everybody else believes the way I do. Be careful if everybody believes the way you do. Be careful if everybody accepts what you do. Hey, everybody loves, the world loves me. Listen, if the world loves you, Jesus says that ain't, that isn't my love. Jesus actually went the other way. He says, if the world hates you, hey, take courage. Know that it hated me first. And so here's the thing. Take that funnel and turn it around. Only one person can get in a small end at a time. But as you get in, one person goes through. You have to make a decision to follow Christ. And as you walk through that funnel, another person comes in behind you. And then another person. You go in there and you go, wow, this is confined. This is only down to one person. I mean, I can't come in with all my buddies. I have to make a decision on my own. My mom, my dad, my grandma, my grandpa, my wife, my 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 husband, my son, my daughter, whatever it is, my best friend. They can't get me into heaven. I have to make a decision on my own. And you walk through that door on your own. Because you have accepted Christ. And as you walk through that door, you go, well, this is, this is what God wants out of my life. This is the direction he wants in my life. And as you walk through that door, you, you might go, wow, this is pretty tight. There is only one way. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no man comes to the Father except through me. That's a very narrow way. And so I go through that. And the world might go, that's so narrow. I'm not going to do that. Well, I'm sorry. Here's the thing. This is God's this is God's planet. He made it. This is God's book. He wrote it. This is God's humanity. He created it. He can do what he wants. This is what his law is. This is what his rule is. This is how he chose to do things. And so as you walk through that door, you walk through his based upon him, based upon his guidelines.
And you might go, well, this, this is the only way? I, I kind of like it that there's not a lot of ways. How messed up would we be if God gave us 12 ways? You know how many more Satan would throw out there? 12 times 100 more ways. Jesus says, no, it's just one way. Just one way. I'm going to make it very simple. It's one way. Now, you're going to have to decide. But as you walk through that funnel, you're going to find out what you might think looks very confined because it only allows one person in at a time. As you continue to walk, you begin to see the freedom that you have in Christ. And that funnel just continues to get wider and wider and wider. But if you go with the world, the world is going to get narrower and narrower and narrower until it funnels you into that place of destruction. Okay? Let me read real quick. Then indeed, verse 9, or verse 1 of chapter 9, even the first covenant, that's the law, it had ordinances of divine service in the earthly sanctuary. For a tabernacle was prepared, the first part, in which was the lampstand. This is talking about the tabernacle where you remember the Ark of the Covenant was and all the table showbread and all the different things they had inside the tabernacle. For a tabernacle was prepared, the first part in which was the lampstand, the table, and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary. Now that sanctuary, it has this table, has a showbread, has a lampstand in there, and then there was a curtain that separated it from another part on the inside of, you had the sanctuary, and then you had the the Holy of Holies behind this curtain. You had this curtain that separated you from the outside. But as soon as you walked into there, this is what you got. You got a table, showbread, got a lampstand, a menorah over here, if you will. And that's that's what the priest would go in one time daily to go in and fill up the oil and keep the oil burning, take the, the showbread that's in there, the 12 loaves that are in there, take those things out and put brand new loaves in there to the Lord and then take the old loaves out. And every day, that's what he, that's, that was his maintenance of, the, of that part. But in the inner part, you're going to see, the priest could only go in one time a year. He says, the tabernacle was prepared, the first part, in which was the lampstand, the table, and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary. And behind the second veil, this thick veil, the part of the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all, which had the golden altar of incense, the Ark of the Covenant overlaid on all sides with gold, in which were the golden pot and the manna, Aaron's rod that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. That's what's on the inside of the Ark of the Covenant. And above the Ark of the Covenant, above that mercy seat, they called the lid of the Ark of the Covenant a mercy seat. And above it were the cherubim of glory. You got these angelic figures that are over, touching wings on the top and then touching the wings on the side of the tabernacle in this little room, in this little uh, place called the Holy of Holies or the holiest of all, separated from uh, the rest of the sanctuary in there with a curtain. And above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail, and I can't either. Now, when these things had thus been prepared, the priests always went into the first part of the tabernacle performing the services. Doing the oil, changing the bread, but into the second part, the high priest... Now understand, other priests could go in, you know, chosen priests could go into the first part, but only the high priest, only one person, and it was the high priest, into the second part, went alone once a year, not without blood, which he offered for himself, and then also for the people's sins, which were created, committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit indicating this, that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest, or not made, made known, while the first tabernacle was still standing. Now understand this. You can, you can underline this or you can circle this word. It was symbolic. That's not, that's not the way to heaven. These were all simply pictures of something that was to come. That, that the tabernacle, which would then eventually become the, the, the temple. You know the difference between the tabernacle and the temple. The tabernacle was basically the temple in a tent. But when they came into Jerusalem and they built the, the, the temple, the tabernacle was no longer useful. The tent came down. All of those articles went into the temple. It's the same thing. The temple and the tabernacle, same thing. 
One's just a fixed structure. The other was a tent. But they both weren't in operation at the same time. It was symbolic for the present time in which both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make him who performed the service perfect in regard to the conscience. And so here, the priest going in there, it doesn't make him perfect going in there and servicing these things. It doesn't make him perfect. He goes in there and he offers blood. But it doesn't matter. It, it doesn't. It doesn't make him perfect. It doesn't make him perfect. It doesn't make him perfect in regard to the conscience, concerned only with food and drinks, various washings, fleshly ordinances, imposed until the time of Reformation. Until the time, what does that mean? It's when Jesus would come. And now let's read on. This is where, this is until the time. This is when that time came. But Christ came as high priest of the good things to come with the greater and the more perfect tabernacle not made with hands, that is, not of this creation. Okay? So what he's saying is a tabernacle was something that was made with hands, but it was a picture of something that was in heaven. It's a picture of a heavenly article that we as Christians, we have to look unto and understand that the perfect tabernacle is in heaven. The perfect tabernacle is has been satisfied through Jesus Christ. Okay? So, he came, Christ came as high priest of the good things to come with the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation. And definitely not with the blood of goats and calves, but it was with his own blood that he entered into the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. And so there's a lot of Christians that can understand, wait a minute, you mean... Well, they used to sacrifice animals back then, and they, so do they need to still do the, the blood sacrifices? No, because Christ came. The animals were not perfect. The animals were innocent in and of themselves, but they could not pay and completely atone for the sins of mankind. They couldn't wash away your sin. They couldn't wash away my sin. They simply covered them. It was a covering until the promise of the coming one, Jesus Christ came. Because when he came, he took his perfect blood. It's the reason he shed his blood upon the cross. That was the blood that was being sacrificed, perfect. A perfect human being. It's the reason that Jesus came into the world. That's why God became flesh. Because man is born into sin. David says that. I was conceived in sin. When I came into this world, I had sin that entered in through my blood. I had a a message quite a while ago about the sin is in the blood. Sin is in the blood. Lalani gave me a book, which really kind of freaked me out because we talked about it on a Sunday and it was on Monday morning. She said, well, hey, if you read this book, would you, you know, if I ordered this book, would you read it? And I said, yeah, definitely I will do it. And so she ordered it. And and I didn't know she ordered it. She just said she would. But on Monday morning, I get a knock on my door and here's the UPS giving me a book. And I'm going, it was just Sunday. It was just like less than 12 hours ago. She ordered this from Amazon, you know. And there it was, a little drone. No, not really. There wasn't a drone. But, but here, here's the thing. I got that book. The idea is, is that we were talking and and as I gave that message, we understood that a baby... The baby that is being formed in the womb of a woman does not share her same blood. The baby has his own blood supply. The baby doesn't share the blood with the mom. The mom can have O negative and the baby can have O positive. The baby doesn't have, doesn't have to have the same exact blood type as the mother because the, the blood of the mother never passes into, through the placenta and into the baby. It passes over one side of the placenta to give life to the other side of the placenta, which is the baby's part. And they both have this interaction, but they never touch. They never interact. They never come together. Therefore, the blood, why Jesus needed to be born of a virgin, why Mary was a virgin is because she was a sinner. I'm sorry, my Catholic friends, but Mary is a sinner. But the thing is, she, through her blood, was able, through her body, she was able to 
give birth to a child that was conceived by the Holy Spirit. It's why God planted a seed inside Mary because God understood. Is this just not blow your mind that God designed a woman? I mean, I, I blew my mind when I thought, when I, when I learned for the very first time, are you kidding me? The blood of the mother never touches the child, this gestating child. Even till the time that it's born, none of her blood gets into the baby. That just blows my mind. Is God just not magnificent or what in his creation? But doesn't it make the virgin birth more understandable? It's the reason why Jesus was able to be born perfect and sinless because Mary's sinful blood never entered into the perfect and holy seed of Jesus Christ. Is that cool? So here's the thing. He was born. He was born sinless and he lived sinless. The Bible tells us in this same book of Hebrews that he was tempted in all points, even as we, and yet what? Without sin, right? He didn't sin. He was tempted in what you were tempted in. Huh? Holy blood. That's right. He had holy blood. He didn't sin, but he was tempted in the things that you were tempted in. You go, ah, no, he hasn't. I mean, he was never tempted by an iPhone. No, he was tempted in many things, far even greater than you and I. And yet that without sin. Why? Because he had a focus. He had a goal. He had a purpose. And it was you. And it was me. Is that not awesome? That he would live when he had the capacity. Think about it for a moment. If you had my wife, we found this ring. We found this ring. We just had a garage sale that we've been talking about for two and a half years, you know, yesterday at our house. I am so thankful. I'm never going to have another garage sale as long as I live. And here's the thing. I hate garage sales. But in the midst of garage sale, there was a ring that she found. She goes, man, this ring looks pretty cool. Nate, do you want this ring? And Nate goes, I don't want to have that ring. Put that ring on my hand. I, I go, well, let me see that ring. And I go, wow, that's a pretty cool. Can I put it on? Maybe I'll turn into like the Green Lantern. Yeah. <laughs> And, and, and she goes, she goes, well, here, you know, she gave it to me. I go, all right, all right. Now, I might become incredibly buff after I do this, honey. Are you going to still love me? And she goes, yeah, I love you because you're going to be real buff. And I said, okay. And I stuck this. I tried to stick it on this finger and it didn't fit. So I stuck it on my pinky and I went, do I look any different? She goes, oh, you look stronger. <laughs> yeah, obviously playful banter. But think about it for a moment. If you had the capacity to have all the power in the world, to have all the knowledge in the world, how would you use it? That's what Jesus had. And yet it didn't dissuade him from the, the one focus and the one goal, and it was you. You were the joy. The Bible tells us there in chapter 12 of this same book, Hebrews, who for the joy that was set before him, you and me, he endured the cross. He despised the shame, and he sits down at the right hand of the Father right now. He never was dissuaded from his one goal, even though he could have done it all. He could have had all the wealth. He could have had all the fame. He could have had all the power in all of the world. And yet he chose not that. He chose a humble life, laying aside his reputation, humbling himself even to the point of the cross because he had you in mind because he wanted to give you that opportunity to go through that little small door called the way, the truth, and the life. I am so out of time. I got to end. I, I, I really want to finish. I, mean, I was going to read all the way through chapter 10, but I'm out. I'm not going to force you to do that, but I might pick this up next week right there because this, hopefully guys, this jacks you. This, this excites my heart when I see what God has done for us. And the idea is here is that there's a lot of Christians that don't understand the good news. They don't understand the steps and the lengths and the, the breadth and the height, for Andy's sake, height. <laughs> that, that God went through in order to secure your salvation. Simply to wrap it up in a present and say it's yours, now you got to unwrap it. you got to take it. you got to take it. you got to open it. The thing about a gift is that God is never going to force you to open it. But he offers it. It's up to you whether you're going to open it or not. The large end of the funnel, there's a lot of people that are walking into that large end of the funnel with that unopened gift. 
because they don't want to be limited. But in all their desire to not be limited, they're going to find out that in that wide funnel, it's going to just get narrower and narrower and narrower to where they have no more. They are so limited. And they're going to find out it's a horrible place to be. I don't know who set it out on the on the uh, internet the other day on Facebook. I came across something that I thought fascinating, especially in light of Billy Graham's passing just recently. Did anybody see? Did any? Did this thing come across your screen on Facebook? If you're on Facebook, a, a, a ten minute interview that Woody ha- Woody Allen had with Billy Graham. I just came across my, my screen just this yesterday and I, I read, watched half of it and then I had to watch the other half later. But, but uh, it was amazing. I loved it. Woody Allen, he used to, I guess, have a talk show. Anybody remember that? Woody Allen having a talk show? I guess he had a talk show. He had all this big crowd out there. And he says that I, I, I'm going to introduce my next guest. He's a very distinguished man. And he's, he's a very kind man and a, a man that I, I highly respect. Now, we don't agree on much. There are a couple of things that we'll agree on, but there's a lot of things we do not agree on. But in spite of that, I want to bring him out because I, let's, I want to talk to him. And he brought Billy Graham out. Billy Graham came out and he sat down for a 10-minute interview. And Woody Allen was cracking jokes at Christianity and Billy Graham's expense. And Billy Graham never took the bait. He never got angry. He never got angry. You know, somebody asked, they had questions from the audience. And Billy Graham was never dissuaded. He, he kept his nose at the cross. He kept his nose on this is my purpose and this is my goal. I couldn't have been more proud of a Christian than I was of Billy Graham as he was sitting there. And he was a crowd of people laughing with Woody Allen at how ludicrous that Billy Graham was. But the funny thing was, by the end of the, by the end of the conversation that they had, the laughs kind of changed style. And you can see that there were some in that audience that were going, what the heck am I laughing at? There's one guy up there that knows the way. There's one guy up there that knows truth. And I'm going to just go out on a limb here. I'm going to say it's not Woody Allen. He tried to mock him. Somebody asked the question, Billy Graham, have you ever seen one of Woody Allen's movies? And Woody Allen, or, and Billy Graham says, well, I will say no. I've never seen a Woody Allen movie. But, you know, uh, I, being here with him and, and having a couple of conversations with him over my life, uh, he's a very funny man. I wouldn't be opposed to go to a movie if he would send me a free ticket. (laughs) And Woody Allen said, well, Reverend Graham, I would send you a ticket. In fact, here's what I'll make. Here's what I'll do. I'll send you a ticket. You come to see one of my movies and I'll go to one of your things. And Billy Graham goes, deal. I will go to your movie and you come to one of my crusades. The guy didn't shake his hand. Yeah, I mean, he just said, well, I will. I'll do it. Now, uh, you know, you, I'm now understand I'm very influential. So whatever it is that you're selling, I'm probably going to buy it. And basically, Billy Graham is, oh, if I could, if I could only, if I could only. Yeah, and, and he was so set and focused. And Woody Allen was trying to constantly crack jokes. And Billy Graham took it in stride. Never got angry, but always pointed it back to Jesus Christ. He's saying, hey, what about premarital sex? What about living with somebody before you marry him? Hey, not really. Tell me something about that, Reverend Graham. He goes, well, I believe that God has a moral code. He said that man is not to cohabitate like that. Man is not to have relations with anyone who is not his wife. Well, Woody Allen says, but it's hard. How would you expect this guy? You know, I go and buy, I think he used something like shoes. I go and buy some shoes. I don't just buy shoes and then go home and try them on and and I'm stuck with them. You know, I, I buy them and then put them on and I'm stuck with them. I go and I try them on to see if they fit. How do I know that this woman is going to fit? You know? 
And Billy Graham says, you know what? Here's the thing. And this is the problem we have in America today and in the world today. I'm starting to want to talk like Billy Graham. (laughs) He said, God has a moral code. He has a moral law. God has a perfect plan for mankind. The thing is, is that God created man. I believe so. And I believe that God has a code to live by where it will lead you to his son, Jesus Christ. The thing is, is that God doesn't put these codes out there to limit us or to punish us or to keep us from favor or to keep us from fun. The idea is to keep us safe and fit for his kingdom. And when God says that it's not good to do this, he's not doing it because he dislikes you. He does it because he wants the betterment of all mankind. If you just follow him. And he just didn't, he didn't give up. Woody Allen tried to throw a couple of cracks in there and he wasn't, he just said, it is God's planet. And it is, I'm, I'm, we are creations of God and we are to follow after God. You can look it up, man. It's like, it's, it, it'll inspire you. It's awesome. But gang, I, I just want us to not, I don't want, I don't want a church that I have an opportunity to preach at, that I have an opportunity to speak at, to ever go away ignorant. I don't want us to be ignorant. I want I want you to be able to understand. I mean, now today, what you've learned, if nothing else, I mean, there was a lot of things that you could learn, but you can walk out of here today. If someone goes, what was the whole big thing about the virgin birth? I mean, why was it so necessary? You're equipped, right? You're equipped. You understand it a little bit more. You understand why God had to... Because the Bible says that the blood of bulls and goats was not sufficient to pay for the sins of mankind. It was just simply a covering at the time until Jesus came. But when Jesus came, we don't need the blood of bulls and goats anymore because he took his own blood into the mercy seat. He poured it on. And in so doing, that holy of holies, and we'll, I'm letting go of some of the stuff we'll talk about maybe next week, but here's the thing. When he did that, the Bible says that when he died, that curtain in the temple that was some two miles away from Jesus when he died on that cross, there was a rip heard. And that curtain... Some estimations, by some estimations, is some six to eight inches thick of linens and woven fabrics and things. Think about that. You see these bodybuilders ripping phone books? You go, wow, that's amazing. Try to rip a six to eight inch fabric, but not just rip it. It ripped from the top to the bottom. Is it top to the bottom? Yeah. God ripping open the curtain. Ripping open that that inner veil where no man could go past that but once a year he ripped it from top to bottom and spread that thing open to where if you went into that temple you'd you'd see what no man could ever see except once a year. And that with much fear and trepidation to go in there. The signifying God was satisfied. There's no need for a temple anymore. There's no need for a a tabernacle anymore. That's in heaven. That temple was a picture of something that was later on. We'll talk a little bit about that next week. But guys, I want you to be educated. I want us to know that we truly have a good father. We truly have a good God. We truly have a reason for living for him and not being ignorant. Don't be ignorant as a Christian. Open his word. This is this playbook that he's given to you. Know it. But then go out and live it. And watch. But that his Holy Spirit is not going to empower you to do things that you never dreamed that you could ever do. You just got to trust him. Amen? Amen. Father, thank you so much for today. Lord, I'm sorry for taking long, but Lord, I love your word. I love when we explain who you are. I love to understand your plan and see how your your plan perfectly played out 
even to this day that we sit in these seats here on March 11, 2018. Thank you, God, for your deep thoughts towards us, your deep heart towards us, your compassion and your mercy to us, your willingness to offer everything that you you are in order to secure something we could never purchase on our own, something we could never earn on our own, something we could never attain on our own. You did that for us, and we thank you, Lord. Thank you for loving us that way. We love you, God. Help us, Lord, to understand how to apply this kind of a message to our life. But God, one thing I pray is that we don't come back in next week the same way we came in this week. I pray that we're changed. I pray, God, that you empower us. I pray that we branch out this week. We take a step this week in, in, a, in a way that we wouldn't normally take a step. That God, maybe just one time this week, those that are, are, are frightened of it, Lord, that you'd give them the confidence to, to, to take a step in you. Maybe to reach out and minister to someone. Maybe call someone. Maybe talk to somebody. Maybe serve somebody. Maybe love the unlovable. In Jesus' name, Lord, I pray that every single one of us would would not simply just wear the uniform. We wouldn't just be bearing the colors as Christians, but that we would be informed and we would be active participants knowing our job and then doing it along with the brothers and sisters in this world that you have saved also. Use us, Lord, to gain ground for you. May your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, thanks for listening. So, did Jesus cause a change in you today? Or do you need prayer? We'd love to hear from you. Please contact us by visiting our website at calvarychapelcf.com or call our office at 941 926 3717. That's 941-926-3717. Again, thanks for listening to In the Word with Pastor Don.